Hi, Maya. Thank you for joining us on the 911 Nonsense podcast. Um, can you do me a favor and just go ahead and give me an introduction of yourself? Yeah. So my name is Maya. I'm an ER nurse. I'm a flight nurse, and I also do aesthetics. Um, I've been a nurse for five and a half years now, so still fairly new to the nursing community. Um, however, it feels like it's been 10 years, considering the last couple of years that we've gone through. Um, I have always wanted to be a nurse. I don't know why people always ask me that question, what made you want to be a nurse? And I don't have really a good answer for them. Um, it's just that I've always been interested in medicine and not even just a nurse. I've always wanted to be in the ER, in the middle of the chaos. Um, I really, I really like working on my toes. I like the pressure. Um, I feel like I do really well under the pressure. And so I've been working um, not in a leveled trauma ER, but because I am pretty far out there, we do get our fair share of um, trauma and chaos. And I've been really happy doing that. I just started doing flight about six, seven months ago. And I'm really liking that, really loving that. Which would you say you like better? Oh, flight. Flight. (laughs) Flight. (laughs) Is there a particular reason you like flight more? Oh, uh, call lights. <laughs> okay. So, so you don't have the call lights. I don't have call lights in the in flight. Um I mean like in the ER, you know, you have anywhere from three, four, five, six patients. Um you could get a code come in and you still have your full wall of patients. You still have patients in the hallway. You still have people coming out and yelling at you. Um and then you don't have five call lights of everybody being like I'm still uncomfortable. I need to go to the bathroom. My toe hurts. You know, things that, like, you can't – you just – I just feel like in the ER, it's really difficult. I love working in the ER. Don't get me wrong. But I feel like it's a constant game of not enough. It's never enough. It, like, never feels like it's enough, whether it's not enough from patients or from family members or from management. I just feel like no matter what I do, it's never enough. And then in flight, I feel like it's always whatever I do, people are always grateful for. Whether it's transporting a psych patient to a psych hospital or a super sick critical patient, like it, or even just a quick case management, people are always so grateful for us to be there. And people always tell me, like, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for flying with me. Thank you for telling me it's going to be bumpy. Thank you for holding my hand whatever it is people are always grateful that I've noticed when I've been in flight and I don't get that in the ER so I I like flight for the fact that it makes me feel like what I do is enough yeah that's a huge it's a huge dynamic change right going Mm -hmm. from the ER into the airplane right yeah um what would you say has been the best flight call that you've had so far Actually, I immediately think of this one kid, um, I guess without delving too deep into the specifics because of HIPAA and everything, but it was a kid who was in an accident and the person that was driving him didn't make it through the accident. And so we go to pick up this kid out of this rural hospital to, you know, transport him up to another state for pediatric trauma. Um, His other... Um, guardian was in another state driving as fast as they could to get to us and I was texting them the entire time like pictures of this kid pictures of um, the kid in the plane pictures of the kid with stickers and like smiling and laughing um, drawing on my iPad and taking pictures of the kid in in the cockpit when we landed because they wanted wanted a picture as like the pilot 
um, pretending that they were the pilot. And just ha- knowing that, like, even though this kid was okay, but making it better for the parent that wasn't there and had already experienced, like, that the other parent hadn't made it through this accident, that this kid was alone, that this kid had nobody else, that this kid was kind of, like, sh- shaken up and, like, in shock by what had happened. And then being able to make them smile still. Um, and it wasn't, like, a critical call by any means. It wasn't like I had a ventilated patient. I had, like, 18 drips going and I managed them. It was just the simple fact that I could make the kid and that parent feel better by just being there and sending a couple of pictures and having some stickers for them. Um, when we got there to the hospital, the parent that was there came and ran up and, like, pulled me and my partner into their arms and was crying and was like, I can't tell you how grateful I am for you guys being there, for talking to us, for calling us, FaceTiming us, sending us pictures because it meant the world knowing that, like, yeah, I knew my kid was okay physically, but that my kid was being taken care of by people who actually cared. And that was by far my favorite call, my favorite case, my favorite patient of anything, of anything that I do in the ER and aesthetics in flight, that's been by far my favorite. They actually sent us a card with a picture of him. And with him, <laughs> he wrote out, thank you. And it was just the cutest. I, like, we, you know, we don't go into this field for praise or thanks or anything like that. And it's rare that we get it. But when we get it, it, like, shows just how much of a difference we made and, like, how much, like, we all impacted each other. And I I don't know that they realize how much they impacted me and my partner, but we talk about that case all the time. And getting that made our day, made our week, like it made us so happy. So yeah, that's awesome. That's that is something that we don't get a lot of, you know. But when we do, it really it sticks with us, right? It just makes it that much better. Yeah, Um, that's a fantastic. That's a fantastic (laughs) story. I love that one. Um, and in your experience, flight or ER, what would you say has been your worst moment or your worst patient? So, I mean, I can think of one off the top that's like pretty gruesome and like gory and brutal, right? But, and, may, and I'll circle back to that, but I think the worst thing that I see is it's pretty constant and it's pretty regular and it's people fighting for people to stay alive when they're suffering. Um, I think I see that so often, especially in the ER. And even now in flight, we transport. And and this is going to sound bad to people who aren't in the field. But we transport like 90, 100-year-olds, 88-year-olds, 89-year-olds. And they're so tired. And they're so frail and brittle. And you can just tell. They're just like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this because my daughter wants me here. I'm doing this because my son, like my grandkids. And it's like but how do you feel? Like, does anybody take into account how you feel, how tired you are, how mis- like how much you're in pain, how, you know, and, it, and it, like you, I get that because it's like, you know, I'm kind of the same kind of person. It's like, well, I'm going to do this for somebody else. But I feel like, you know, the saying do no harm, we don't really realize how much we push that to the side when it comes to these kinds of people. I feel like keeping these people alive under extreme circumstances is more than torture it's it's selfish it's painful it's hard it's hard for me to you know load somebody up into the plane who every single movement hurts them 
every single jostle and you know we're taking them through wind and turbulence and it's hot outside so it's bumpy and it's spring so it's windy and then it's loud and they're just miserable and they're so unhappy but they're sticking around because their family member is power of attorney and they want to keep them alive for as long as they possibly can and they don't they haven't eaten in two weeks because they can't or they haven't had water so they have all these IVs everywhere and I feel like I've seen my fair share of traumatic things but by far that's the worst thing that I see I would agree that that is really hard to see and it can be considered, right, a, mis- a misinterpretation of the, you, sp- you spoke of do not harm or do no harm. And with doctors, right, they, in nurses or any type of uh, medicine field, you have those do no harm, which could mean don't give too much medication, you know, don't poke them five times trying to get a line. But I think the disparity, you know, between or the education between a doctor and a family person or a lay person can be hard to interpret because if they want to just keep their family alive and don't understand that when you're putting that person on a ventilator, they have a, a little chance of coming off that ventilator. In certain circumstances, right. sure, they'll do well, but chances are good if they're getting put on the ventilator, they're, they're it's not going to come situation. off. Yeah. yeah. So that one is, that is hard to see. And I think the term life support is, it's, it's a, I don't know, it's difficult to explain because people are like, oh, okay, they're on life support. Yeah, but how much life does this person have with that support, you know? And I, I, I feel like I hear that term and everyone's like, oh, they're on life support, they're okay. But a lot of people don't understand what really, like, goes into that. You know, the medications we have to give you to sedate you, to get you to get rid of pain that we may or may not know that you're having. Like, can you hear us? Do you know what's going on? Do you hear everything? Are you paralytics? Like, we have to paralyze some people. We have to, you know, and it's it's not without its own kind of trauma. And these patients deal with that trauma, and we aren't really able to fully understand that or get a grasp on it because, yeah, either we lose these patients and we don't realize that they've suffered for weeks on end under that life support, or they wake up and they're like, I I was awake for every single moment and it was the most traumatizing. I wish I had never dealt with it. And people don't really realize that. And I think that's the hardest part is, you know, I've seen people shot. I've seen people stabbed. I've seen people traumatically injured in car accidents. But that by far is my most traumatic is seeing people who are suffering and constantly suffering and their family members don't really understand it. I'm not going to say that they choose to allow them to go through it because I get that. Like people who are in medicine don't understand it. I get that. But I wish that there was more, there was a stage where we'd be more willing to like explain that and people were more willing to listen to that Um, because I feel like we'd really reduce a lot of suffering among people who are a lot sick. of fatigue too, yeah right? and a lot of fatigue on us because you're right like we go through a lot to 
for futile efforts, right? We go so do through you a think lot. that there's something that we could do to maybe better educate people or maybe change that around? See, and that's the hard part, right? Like, we can't just, like, bring, like, a camera crew into the, the hospitals, like, to the ER, to the ICU, to the CT. Like, we can't, we can't, like, televise this. And we can't, like, sit there and be like, here's a whole TV show, a whole YouTube channel, a whole TikTok dedicated to understanding the suffering that goes on in the hospital we can't we can't do that like because how feasible is it to sit back and be like hey I know that your family member is in cardiac arrest and suffering right now can you sign this waiver so that we can record it and put it out there for people to see and understand that's the hard part because ideally that would be exactly what we would want to do is show everybody but we can't because there's no way to like get that permission from every single person and every single family member and every single anybody involved right and then telling them in that moment also right Mm -hmm. there's no way that we can educate I mean we could try to educate people outside of those moments but when you're in that moment you don't know how people are going to to act or behave or if they're even going to listen because they're trying to figure out their whole life situation at that point right And, and I mean and how how can you approach somebody who's loved one is in a dire situation and be like, oh, we're going to film this so we can show the rest of the right. world this. Like, so it's, it's a hard, it's a hard situation to be in. It's a hard, um, it's a hard place to be because it's like, how do you, yeah, how do you try and get that information out there and educate people without them? I mean, you know, we went through COVID nobody believed us then. So how are people <laughs> going to believe anything that we say? Like, I, it feels like a dead end because it's like, what, what are people actually going to believe us when we say things, you know? Sure. So we talked about how traumatizing that is for, you know, the patients and how traumatizing that can be for the family. But how traumatizing is that for you? It's exhausting. You know, we get these patients who come in and they're like, oh, we have a 93-year-old cardiac arrest. And it's like, okay. And they're full code. So they come in and we beat on their chest and we, you know, stick things down their throat and in their arms and we put follies in them and we put central lines in them and art lines and we do all these invasive procedures for them to make it up to the ICU for the next three hours or to not even make it out of our ER room to not even make it through all the traumatizing things we do and not like it's exhausting and it's so mentally and emotionally taxing because we get these people who come in and not only are we dealing with the situation at hand, the patient, you know, the thing that's going on, the thing that we all are trained to do, but then we have the family member who's crying. And not we're not immune to that. We're not monsters. We're not like we're robots and we're doing this. We hear you crying. We see you crying. We see you breaking down. We see the despair in your eyes and your family and everybody just, their world changing. And we feel that and we shoulder that too because we take on the situation at hand, but we also have to take on your emotions and we also have to be aware of what we're doing and aware of how we're talking and what we're saying and how loudly we're saying things because you're right there with us or you're there, you understand. Like it's exhausting and it's hard because, you know, we're not, again, we're not robots, we're not monsters. At the end of the code, if we call it and it futile efforts and the patient passes and then the family comes screaming and barreling in, we need a minute. You know, we're not, I'm not going to just turn around and be like, all right, cool. Well, I got this toe pain next door. Like then I'm going to go, you know, schmooze. No, like it, we just lost somebody. And I think that circles back into when I say that the ER feels like it's not enough. It's like, it, it never feels like it's enough because we can do everything, 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 everything possible. And it just, it wasn't enough. 
And that gets so tiring. It burns you out. It does. And then on top of that, you have the family member who's upset, you know, and they're going to be mad at us. They're going to be upset with us. You know, we didn't try enough. We didn't do hard enough efforts to bring back their loved one. And that's fine. We shoulder that too. We shoulder the anger. We shoulder the hurt and the pain. And, you know, it's not an easy thing that people think that we do. That they're like, oh, you must love being an ER nurse because of this. And it's like, I do. I do love what I do. But it's so, it's a lot. And it's not for a lot of the reasons that they think it is, Mm -hmm. right? So it sounds like, to me, you're describing compassion fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? So I feel like maybe I'm not the right person to ask because I went full-time, I went part-time, and then I went PRN in order to be able to handle it because I, I noticed I was getting to a point where I was not very compassionate. And I'm a very compassionate person. I'm very empathetic. I like to put myself in people's shoes and understand what they're feeling. I I very much feel um, what other people around me are feeling. I felt when I would go to my job in the ER, I was even being mean to like the simple medicals, like people who came in, yeah, for stubbed toes or they twisted their ankle or they had a stomachache after eating some gas station sushi. And it's like, well, yeah. But like, you know, I felt like I just wasn't even being nice anymore. People would hit their call and be like, I'm in pain. And it was like, okay. You know, and I and I noticed I was being like that. And that's the side that people are point out and be like, nurses are, you know, assholes. Nurses are rude. And it's like, yeah, but do, like, do you know half of the things that we've gone through that puts us to that point? And I get it. A lot of people just stay in it without recognizing that in themselves. And then they continue on. And it, or they recognize it and they don't care because it's a job. Right, right. right. And they're like, oh, I'm getting a paycheck. Who cares? And it's not me who's suffering. It's not me in that bed. It's not my family member in that bed. So people just continue on with it. I get it. But I saw that in myself and I hated it. I hated it because I for so long had dreamed of being in the ER, being an ER nurse. I so badly wanted that. And I hated myself. Like I hated who I was when I went to work. And I noticed that. So I pulled back. I went from full time, which is another thing that like I hate is when people are like, oh, you're a nurse. You only work three days a week. Those are some of the hardest and worst three days of our lives. Yes. Like, you know, come on. Um, So I went from three days a week to two. um, And that helped a lot. Like, you know, 12 hours, one shift. You would think, what's the difference? I I dated a guy and he was like, what's one shift? Everything. My sanity, my compassion, my energy, like my mental health. That's what it is. That's what 12 hours of not being in the ER a week does for me. And it, and it worked and it was great. And I, and I had a, you know, I had a change of attitude. I had some more freedom. I had more time to focus on myself and the things I wanted to do. I had more time off and it, it worked. It worked really well. It, I helped, um, it helped me a lot. And then I started working in aesthetics. So I started doing um, Botox and fillers and laser hair removal. And it was just a different side of nursing that was fun and got me not thinking about you know, the things that were going on in the world at the time and and just taking care of people in a different way. And then I noticed I was becoming fatigued again and I was getting cranky again and I hated going to work again and I hated everything. I just was upset. I was annoyed. Um, and so I decided I need a change of pace 
and I was talking to one of the paramedics at um, my ER one day, and he was like, you know, I really think you would be a good flight nurse. And I said, you know, that's funny. Like, I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to do that. That's been the thing that I wanted to do before I went to nursing school because I've seen it. I've, I used to live in Alaska. Like, we do a lot of medevac out there. Um, and I was like, that's going to be me. I'm doing that. And so I knew I had to be ER. And then I did a ride along with a local flight company, and they told me that I need 82 years of ICU and 73 years of NICU and 45 years of CVICU. So it was like, yeah, I got like kind of shot down. Because again, I've only been a nurse for five and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, but every single one of those years, I worked my butt off because I knew I wanted to do flight. And so I always push myself to learn and understand more and study more, I would get down to these rabbit holes of like, oh, what was that disease process? And why did I give this medication? I don't care about like it, I know it fixed your blood pressure, but why? Um, so I, he told me, you know, you'd be a good flight nurse. Like, let me give you the name of this guy who works at this company. You should apply and I think you'd like it. And so I was like, okay. So I kind of on a whim just applied and I started getting more and more excited because they had called me and they wanted to set up an interview. And my thought process was, I can't wait to get this job. And then it was, oh my God, what if I don't get this job? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm so burnt out. I'm so upset. I'm so, I'm miserable. I'm depressed. Like I, I know my mental health is suffering. Like what am I going to do if I don't get this job? And then I got the job and it felt like the clouds had dissipated it felt like the rain had gone away it was like I have this opportunity to do something that I've always wanted to do but I have this opportunity to do something to reduce the fatigue again and so I got this job with flight um and I went PRN in the ER and I never really actually have ever wanted to quit the ER I I like what I do in the ER but I know I needed to scale it back in order to keep myself sane and healthy and now I work PRN in the ER and I work full-time in flight and I work PRN at my aesthetics job. And it's the perfect balance. I love it. I get to make my schedule for aesthetics. I get to work at minimum two days a week at the ER, which if I want to pick up more, I can pick up more. Um, and I have because now I'm not there all the time dealing with the not enough. Now I'm not there all the time wishing I could do more, wishing I had more time, more resources, more medicine, more energy. But now, like, it's in spurts, and it's it's enough. Like, now it feels like it's enough for me because I get the satisfaction of what I do in flight. I get to be my own provider. Me and my partner get to work in sync and be like, hey, we're going to do this together, and oh, you taught me that, and I taught you this, and all right, this is going to be great. And then I get to take that knowledge to the ER and be like, hey, like, let's not do this medication for this patient. Maybe let's talk about this and not – not feel like I'm just taking orders from somebody. And now I get to feel like I'm actually part of this patient's care. And it feels like it's just a little bit enough now. That's It's a huge learning curve, right? Going from a team of people to help you to one person yeah. helping you. <laughs> yeah. How Have you had any like major embarrassing stories? Things you wish you could take back or that you would do differently? So, um, I guess not yet. And I say not yet because there's always that opportunity, right? But my partner and I, we work really well together. I don't know. My partner and I just, we actually get along really, really well. 
Um, we joke, we have fun. And I mean, my partner's been a medic for the 15, 20 years and has been in flight for, you know, 15 years or something like that. And so, I mean, she's been doing this for a long time. And she tells me all the time, <laughs> she's like, I'm really glad that you know that because I never would have known that. Like whether it's a medication or like some an, or an interaction of meds or something like that. And then she, you know, we'll have a patient who will be like on the monitor and she's like doing all the things on the monitor and send them up on the vent. And I'm like, I'm really glad I have you because I'm still learning those, like the, the monitor, not the monitor, but the vent. Like I'm still learning vent settings and I'm still learning like all that stuff. So I, we feel really lucky to have each other because – I learn from her just as much as she learns from me. And I don't think that there's necessarily been like an embarrassing moment between us, but there's always been moments where both of us have been like, ah, like, thank you. Okay, cool, thanks. Like, I'm so glad that you thought of that because I didn't think of that. Or I'm so glad that you knew that because I didn't know that, but now we know that. Um, So I don't think we've had necessarily anything embarrassing. Um, There have been times where I'm like, I remember when we did our scenarios um, for education purposes, I completely embarrassed myself out of that entire situation. And the worst part of it was, is like, I knew what to do in that scenario. But I had, like, so many people around me watching me. And I was, I kept saying, like, I'm not an idiot, I promise. And I forgot to hook up, like, the oxygen to the vent. And I forgot to hook up the vent, like, to the – it was it was one of those things where it was, like, that was embarrassing. So I've done that where it was embarrassing – but again, like, I feel like I work really well under pressure. So when it comes down to, like, actually patient management, I can sit back and be like, what am I what am I missing and why is the patient suffering? Because I can fix that. Um, but if it's, like, a scenario, oh, forget it. Uh, yeah, in, in my personal opinion, I don't think that they do enough scenarios with nurses where you're put into that situation where you're in a room and you're not in an ER room where – oh yeah, that oxygen, that's going to remind me to plug in the oxygen, right? right? You don't have that when you're in just a regular room. No, you don't. We, I mean, we get scenarios in nursing school, right? With Simban. Um, but no, we don't get scenarios like you guys do with for medics. Like we just don't. And I, I remember telling um, a couple of the medics at work and being like, oh, I totally embarrassed myself. And everyone's like, yeah, uh, nurses don't really get scenarios. But then of course you have nurses who are top of the line work in the ICU, CVACU, and they can blow through these. And I'm like, okay, fine. Like, we all know that you're amazing. But me, like, I suffered and I struggled and embarrassed myself. Um, but I do, I do, you're right. Like, we don't get those scenarios as nurses. That's why we have our partners. Right, exactly. To fall back on, you know, or to hope that they'll help us. Right. <laughs> hope that we have somebody we can rely on. So uh, we had talked about COVID earlier, and then you said that you, you've been a nurse for about five years. So that means that you kind of came into it right before COVID. How was that? Uh, uh, night and day, completely night and day. I remember my ER, um, when I, w- I started working night shift when I started working as a nurse because you're young and dumb, and you're like, yeah, night shift yeah, I can stay up all night. I'm a night owl. Um, I remember nights at <clears throat> my ER, we would have two patients in the ER. We'd have, oh, we got an EMS. Like, everybody wake up because we're all taking naps and there's not a single patient in the ER right now, you know? And again, like, I didn't work at a level trauma center, so we could enjoy that luxury. And we took that for granted because shortly after, and even still there's no break it's just it went from 
nobody being there unless you were sick and you had something going on. Um, you know, you'd get your, you know, people who come in because they stubbed their toe or they had a hangnail or a paper cut that really hurt really bad. But it wasn't like it is now. You, you, there'd be nights where it was like you're getting census managed. It was like, okay, well, we have five patients in the ER and we have eight nurses. We, we got to send some people home. Does anybody want to go home? And it was always the fight of like, no, I want my hours. Or, yeah, I'd love to go home. Um, and then I remember when COVID first started, when it was like just becoming a thing, I actually just gotten over being really sick didn't know what I had been sick with and then I wonder why yeah super weird I actually got sick like December 2019 through like February 2020 I just like couldn't I was so sick I was so sick and so right after I had started getting better was like COVID and it's here and we're shutting things down um so we went from like kind of enjoying like our days and nights where it was nice and chill to wow, we really don't have patients. Like, people are not coming to the ER at all, whether they're sick or they have COVID symptoms or, like, they have chest pain. Like, nobody is coming to the ER. It got to the point where we were census managing every single, like, sorry, but, like, you got to go home. I know you want your hours, but you got to go. We don't I have any I did not patients. expect that answer from you. That's interesting. And then it turned into, all right, I know we just sent everybody home last week, we need everybody to work as much as humanly possible this week. Mm. And it was at the drop of a hat. It was it was from literally from one week to the next where it was like, okay, everybody gets census, nobody gets their hours, like it sucks, I'm sorry, like fine to we don't have anywhere to put these patients. We don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough staff, we don't have enough medics. Like please if you can come in for even 4 hours to help us. And it was like a flip of a switch it was absolutely insane we were we were taking care of patients in hallways in our decon room we there was not a space in our er that wasn't taken up by patients and it was constant it was all right we got five more ambulances coming in what are they covid symptoms covid symptoms this one's a chest pain probably from covid symptoms this one's you know, dizziness probably from COVID symptoms. And they're just lined up going out our ambulance bay. I mean, we're not a large ER either. Like we're not a trauma center, we're not a large ER, but a lot of people came to our ER thinking like, oh, it's out there. Not many people are gonna go out there. So everybody went out there <laughs> and everybody took an ambulance there and everybody was coming in sick as shit. And it was, it was, again, it was a flip of a switch and it was absolute, chaos and it was like at the moment we were all like we need to do our due diligence we need to show up and like rally for our coworkers. and we need to be there and then people started getting sick and then people started calling off because they were sick and then they had covid and then people started calling off because they were working eight nine ten days in a row and they had fatigue and they like didn't want to come in and so it was just this never-ending game of we're short-staffed we're short-staffed we're short-staffed like come help your team if you don't come in your team's gonna suffer oh, you should really come in and help your team because your team's suffering right now. So it was this like, not only was it we knew what was going on, but our management was playing this game against us where it was like, if you don't come in, your team's going to suffer. If you don't come pick up, the team today is going to struggle. And it was like, okay, I, you're right. Maybe I should go in. Maybe I should go help my friends out. Maybe I should go help my coworkers out. Then you'd get there and it's like you do something and it's like, well, why did you do this? And it's like, you told me to come in and I'm here. Like, what do you want me to do? Um, but yeah, COVID, I, 
we ran out of ventilators very fast. Um, we were putting patients on BiPAP, and I had a patient come in, and it wasn't doing good on non-rebreather, and it's like, okay, let's try BiPAP. And our came down and was like, well, I don't have any more machines. I was like, what? And she's like, I have one more ventilator. One. And I have a patient upstairs who might need it. And it was like, okay, well, we have five down here who might need it. And she's like, I know. <laughs> and it was like, okay. Uh, and that's when it started to become real. It was like, holy shit, what the fuck are we supposed to do? Yeah, COVID was scary. It really showed us how quickly we could deplete all of our resources. All of our resources. And it wasn't just equipment. It was space. Staffing. Storage. The morgue. The ice Plus. trucks? Yes. the Having the trucks. And it was funny on our side where we're seeing all of this going on and literally the ice trucks parked outside to store bodies in for people who had passed and you had people arguing on the news that it was fake. That it wasn't even anything that was really going on and that people were making it up and blowing it out of proportion. For me, that was real. That was real. That was probably the hardest part about it is because it was, we're in the confined space of the ER, the hospitals, and we're in trash bag gowns. We're wearing booties. We're wearing three face masks. We're wearing a hat. You know, we're wearing the goggles or the shield and we're, wearing masks that we've worn for the past two, three weeks that are stapled in place and that smell terrible because you put them in a brown paper bag and, like, you haven't brushed your teeth in 12 hours. So, you know, like, and we're suffering through all that for people to tell us that we're lying. We're going through all of that for people to be like, it's not real. Then what the fuck are we doing? Do you think we're just playing dress up that we're all just getting sores across our faces from N95s and we're sweating our lives off like to do CPR and trash bags for an hour for no reason like what what do you think we're doing like what do you we're just lying we're just putting on a front we're depleting like all of our mental and emotional capacity for what like to for a joke so would you say that a lot of people quit because of that so many people quit. I know tons of people who quit healthcare, not nursing, not EMS, healthcare. Like I know doctors who quit. I know radiologists and technicians. I know I know people who quit in mass amounts because it was it was dangerous. It was overwhelming. It was frustrating. It was exhausting. It was taxing. Like it, I know people who took leaves of absence because their spouses were sick and they like didn't want to get them sick, or their parents had like you know they were taking care of their parents and their parents like had all these comorbidities and they couldn't afford to get them sick. And then they just never came back because it was like, well, it wasn't worth it anyways. It wasn't worth it to begin with. And now it's really not worth it to put myself in danger and at the scrutiny of the rest of the world who thinks that we're fucking lying. Like, what's the point of me coming back? I know so many people who left for that for a lot of reasons. And I think it really, COVID really brought that out in a lot of people where it was just like, why am I here? You know, and it, it made a lot of people recognize that that's what they want to do. But it made a lot of people realize that maybe that's not what they wanted to do. So did you, do you think that because you were a newer or fresher nurse that you stayed maybe because this was not that bad? I don't think that I stayed because it was not that bad. Uh, it was bad. 
and it was bad. And we didn't even get we didn't even get like hit like New York or you know like pe- places where they were just bodies next to people who are alive and you're coding three people at the same time. Like we didn't even get to that point, right? And I know the that the reservations got really bad. Um, they got a lot of assistance because they were getting hit really, really, really hard. Um, New York got hit really hard. Think places like that, right? We didn't even get those kinds of numbers, especially. I mean, I know I didn't at my ER, so I can't even. I can talk about how bad it is, and I, but I can recognize that it wasn't that bad, right? It wasn't as bad as these places, but it was still bad. But I definitely. I think I stayed because it was like, I've been a nurse for two years. Like, I'm going to quit now. I'm going to quit now when the rest of the world needs nurses, when the rest of the world needs healthcare workers, when the rest of the world can't do anything else except, yeah, I'm going to get scrutinized and yelled at and verbally abused for what I do, but what is the rest of the world going to do if the rest of us quit? I don't know. And it felt like, yeah, I was – doing like a service like doing a duty to the people around me and to my community being like if I quit now what's gonna happen what's everybody else gonna do because I signed up for this yeah I didn't sign up for the abuse I didn't sign up for the scrutiny I didn't sign up for the bullshit that came with people thinking that I was lying but I I wanted to help people and that was something that I feel like and I still to this day feel like is what I was meant to do and meant to do and I'm not gonna leave that just because things got where they got, I wanted to continue. I wanted to stretch through and I wanted to be that person who is like, yeah, I I can't leave because what are you, what are the rest of you going to do? Well, I think we all appreciate that you're still here with us <laughs> in the field. Woo, heroes work here. <laughs> um, yeah, heroes work here on all of the buildings. Uh-uh. Um, <laughs> speaking of verbally abused, Pay have, us you, more. have you... <laughs> Have you been verbally or physically assaulted? Oh, I I can't even tell you how many times I've had to call the police for verbal physical assault. Yeah. And do you feel that times. you had that support from the police? From the police, yeah. Um from the police. That's about it. Okay. So you wouldn't you wouldn't say that you had that support coming from like the company that you were working for? No. Where they, like, suck it up and just kind of move on? It was more like, um, well, what did you do wrong to cause this? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you shouldn't have done this. Well, you probably could have done this differently. Um, and, again, when I say, like, yeah, I had the support from the police, because they'd come in and they'd be like, this is not their fault. Like, they're here. These nurses, these medics, these EMTs, they're not here to be abused. They're here to help people. And when people abuse them, that's where we step in because it's a felony to abuse a healthcare worker. And it's posted everywhere in every ER, in every hospital. It's posted that it's a felony to abuse a healthcare worker, physical or otherwise, or verbally. And you can be charged for it. But the fact is, is it's not going to go anywhere. And that's not for a lack of trying from our end or from the police. I I know, I know for a fact that any people that I've worked with, because we've all been abused, we've all been physical and verbal abuse from patients. Um, I know a nurse who got, he broke his wrist. Patient broke his wrist. A patient bit me in the midst of COVID while she was COVID positive and spit on me and told me she hoped I died. Um, I've had people grab me by the hair. I've had people sexually abuse me and grab me while I'm at the bedside. I've had people yell at me and scream at me to the point where I had to call security to have them restrained. 
it comes kind of back like full circle to being like, well, are you going to say that a girl deserved to be sexually assaulted because of the way she dresses? So do I deserve to be abused because I'm a nurse? Do I deserve to be yelled at or hit or grabbed because I'm working in the healthcare field? Is that is that what you're saying? So for, yeah, the police will show up and they're like, please continue to show up to court. Please, let's pursue this. Like, we want to work for you. We want this to work for you. We want it to get to a point where we don't have to show up at the hospital three or four times a day to, like, protect our nurses. We don't want to have to show up all the time and the case be dropped because the nurse got tired of showing up. But, yeah, that's the thing. Like, it gets pushed and pushed and pushed. Oh, we have another court date. We have another court date. Well, you don't have lasting damage. And, no, you're doing okay. You're still working. So we're going to drop the case. And so it never goes anywhere. But then you have the – from your management. I had a girl who ran out of the ER, and it wasn't my patient. I went after them because they jumped in a person's vehicle, just a random person, a civilian's vehicle, and was trying to hurt this person. So I jumped in the car after her to try and grab her, and she kicked me in the face with – her heel um, square in the face she grabbed my shirt and was trying to stab me with a pen she tore my shirt she ripped out um one of my earrings and my cartilage here and um by the time we got security and everybody out there she, we had pulled her out of the car and we restrained her all this stuff right and this random person was like shaken up and was like oh my god and like she was trying to steal their car and was trying to hurt them and because i got in the mix of it i got hurt instead of this person and I got yelled at because it was my fault that I got hurt instead of allowing some random innocent person to be hurt. So I got in trouble for intervening. And, and then it was like, well, what if she had stolen this vehicle and ran over this person? What if she caused an accident? What if – well, then we deal with that later. But you got hurt, and that's your fault. Yeah, that's that's tough. How? how, how? Yeah. So you want me to be – all these things but when I try to be a thing I get in trouble for being a thing it's a never-ending battle with management and upper higher-ups it is it it is a revolving door I'm glad that you at least had the police also helping you because Mm -hmm. in my experience in the facility that I worked for it was an eye roll when the as soon as the cops walked in it was an eye roll you know and that was for any circumstance whether it was serious or minor see and i maybe i feel like the the area that i'm in the city that i'm in we're at the hospital that i work at they do always seem very happy to help us they always seem very happy like they're always we get a call out to them for a violent patient or family member they're there right away um so i i feel like i've always been lucky that the the place that i work in that city those police officers have always been very willing to like show up and like stand up for us and to be our advocates because they know that we don't get that. Um, so I, I have felt very lucky that that department has been very willing to be supportive of the nurses and the, the medics and the EMTs. That's great. Yeah. Um, so you've been in the field for five years. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you've developed any type of PTSD? Oh, <laughs> I feel like that might go without saying for most people in healthcare. Um, yeah. I actually um, recently figured out that kind of around this time of the year, around spring time of year, um, every year I've gotten really, really, really depressed, not to get like dark or anything like that. But I always 
feel like I struggle extra with like depression around this time of the year. And that's such a weird time, right? Because it's like spring and it's almost summer. Everything's blooming. And the sun's coming out and we're just getting out of winter and it's not dark and gloomy anymore. Um, I feel like, and then I kind of explored that with a therapist and she's like, what happened? When did this start? When did you start noticing this? COVID. So this was COVID time. Yeah. When COVID first uh, hit and everything shut down, I I lived alone. I was living in an apartment by myself. Um, I was in a relationship that had just suddenly ended, and I couldn't see my parents because my parents have a couple of uh, comorbidities where I didn't want to go around them and get them sick. My sister lived with my parents. I was very isolated. I was very isolated. I have a dog, but it was like I lived in my little apartment. My neighbors knew that I was a nurse, so nobody kind of like – came around nobody and we were all very neighborly before that and before that my neighbor really close to me she used to be like oh my gosh you just got off a stretch of like three days like come over in a few hours and I'll, I'll get you uh make you this or make you that or make you some cookies or she'd bring me over some cookies or something once COVID hit it was very 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 isolating um my mom and I are best friends we talk on the phone multiple times a day um I not being able to see my mom was so hard and I remember one time she came over and she um brought me like a little care package it was like a Lysol spray bottle and like hand sanitizer and and, like my favorite snacks and I was staring out my window in my kitchen and we're just talking to each other through the window and it was like it like it makes me tear up because it's like I remember how far away my mom felt and how so badly the only thing I wanted to do was hug my mom that's all I wanted to do and I'm just crying in the window she's crying in the window she's like I'm coming in I'm coming in and I'm like please don't come in like I'll I'll kill myself if I kill you like I just I can't and she came in and we like hugged each other real quick and I just broke down crying and then she left and I cried the rest of the day because it was like I'm so alone I am so alone and it was it was so hard because it's like you're fighting this uphill battle against this disease that we have no idea what it is. I don't know if I have it. I don't know if I'm carrying it. I don't know if I'm going to get sick and die from it. I don't know if the rest of the world's going to die from it. We don't know anything. We haven't been able to test for it like reasonably. And, and nobody believes us either. Yeah. So it's like it was just – but like so nobody believes you, but nobody wants you around. Yeah. So nobody believes you, but they're like, but ew, you're a nurse. Like, yeah, don't go into the grocery store. Don't do, don't pump don't gas. Don't do anything. Yeah. Like, do, don't do anything to potentially infect the rest of the world, but it's not real. Yeah. So it was like, well, what is it? Like, you know, I remember I was getting gas before work one day and I had my scrubs on and some guy came yelling at me at the pump and it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I'm not a large person. And like, this man comes fucking screaming at me and I'm like, ah, like, and I've, barely put gas in my truck and I'm like trying to do it up and get it back and like get back in my truck and just leave and he's like you're touching things and you're in fact you're the reason why people are dying and you're infecting the rest of the world and it's like what do you expect me to do how am I supposed to live my life like how am I supposed to take care of you people I need to get to work I don't have gas like what and then being in the grocery store like people be like oh what do you do 
I'm a teacher. I'm <laughs> anything but a healthcare worker. Because as much as people praised us, as much as people were like, oh, you guys are heroes, nobody wanted us around. And that was awful. Because it was, you're a hero, you're an angel, you're a saint, like you guys are amazing. Just don't come anywhere near us. And it's like, it's like we had the red letter A painted on our faces, on our chest. Like, you know, like the scarlet letter. It was, if you're a healthcare worker, stay the fuck away. If you're a healthcare worker, you get to come to Costco early, but don't touch anything. Yeah. You know, so it's like if you went to the Costco line or like the Smiths or Walmart because you're a healthcare worker and you got to get in early, everybody was like, okay, cool. Yeah, you can come in. Like, don't. Don't touch anything, though. Basically scan your items yourself. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it was, that was really hard. That was really, really hard because it's like this really weird emotional game that was kind of played against us of you guys are amazing, but you're all liars and you all infect the rest of the world and you're killing people and you're lying about it and it's you guys who are doing it and you're getting paid for it. And I'm like, Yo, if I was getting paid for this, I'd be a lot happier because I'm fucking miserable. <laughs> this would be so much more worth it if I was getting paid for that. But no, we weren't getting paid for shit. We didn't get hazard pay. We didn't get anything. Like, we didn't get shit. Like, Not a lot of people did. No, we didn't get shit for that. Like, we just had to suffer. <laughs> so the hospitals, the transport companies, like, a lot of the majority of healthcare companies were getting bonuses, right, for taking COVID patients. The more COVID patients that you took, the more money you got. But your healthcare workers weren't seeing any of that. That didn't yeah. trickle down to anybody. And it's not, that wasn't for every company, right? Some people did get hazard pay. Not everybody got hazard pay. So some people were just working at the same rate, which was crazy. And that had such a huge effect on the, like, the nursing homes, I don't know yeah. if you remember the the stories with the nursing homes on if they took these COVID patients, the more patients they took, the more money they got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a mess. And then they, they all died. Yeah. Yeah, because it couldn't be contained. Yeah. So that being said, would you do this again? Would you get, if you could start all over, would you get back into the healthcare field? Yeah. I, I think about it a lot. And I thought about it a lot during COVID. I, there was a point where I was like, what other skill set do I have? What else can I do? I was a bartender before I went to nursing school. Like what, what would I possibly do? And honestly, there are a lot of things I can think of that I would probably like to do. But, and this is going to sound so cheesy. (laughs) This is going to sound so cheesy. I'm very much a believer of like the things that happen to you shape you into the person that you are. Um, I feel like I'm a better nurse, a better woman, a better human for the things that I went through during COVID. And it made me a stronger person, made me more resilient, made me more independent, made me more self-sufficient. And I, 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 it was so hard and it was very traumatizing. And thinking about it, yeah, I mean, it made me tear up. Thinking about it is, is hard. But I would do it again because I don't feel like I could be half the person that I am today if I didn't go through those things. Um, I wouldn't be half the nurse that I am today if I didn't have to be as resourceful and like willing to like adapt to the changes and the things that we had to do um, and the ways that we had to be acting and reacting and taking care of people. I don't think that I would be as nearly as good of a nurse and healthcare provider if I didn't have to go through that. So I, I would do it again. 
And I feel very strongly about that because I feel like a lot of people quit. And I don't blame people. I absolutely don't blame people for leaving healthcare. It was it was miserable. But I definitely think for me as a person, I would definitely do it again. Awesome. Great words today. I appreciate <laughs> you coming out. Um, is there... Are there any uh, things that you do on the side that you'd like to talk about or that you'd want to support? Um, actually, there is. Um, I know a guy who um, has this company. His name is Carlos. He used to be a firefighter. He has a company called Hero to Hero. It is a nonprofit organization that reaches out to frontline workers, and it's for doctors, nurses, paramedics, police, dispatch, like anybody who works in any kind of healthcare or frontline work, um, and they work to get resources for mental health. Um, They really advocate for these areas to have access to mental health resources, whether it's therapy or um, whether it's, you know... (laughs) Any kind of thing that helps you feel better or make you um, okay with the situation that you're in. He's really, really um, strongly working to get the word out there. And I think it's a great program. I think it's a great company. I think he works really well with a lot of people around the area and wants to make this something where we don't have the stigma of being miserable. Because th- there's that big stigma of, like, healthcare workers just have to deal with it. You signed up for this. And he doesn't like that. He likes us to be happy in the role. He, he used to come into the ER all the time and be, are you happy? Are you doing okay? How are you doing? And I'd be like, no, I'm having a hard time. Well, like, let's, let's talk about that. Do you need something? Like, can I do something to make you? And I think that that's huge. We don't get that a lot in this field. No. You know, it's like you signed up for it. You got to suck it up and deal with it. He's trying to work against that. He's trying to make it where we love our jobs, where we're happy doing our jobs, and where we're okay, and we don't have that burnout. So Hero to Hero, um, you can follow them on Facebook and Instagram. I think they're an amazing company. If you need any of their resources, Carlos is an amazing human being. He's an amazing person, and he'd be more than happy to reach out and get you the resources and the help that you need. And I think that that's definitely a program that I feel really strongly about. Awesome. Well, thank you, Maya. I appreciate it. It was a great, uh, great conversation today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the 911 Nonsense Podcast. Please remember to comment, review, and share with friends if you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested, we sell all kinds of noon merch at samspursuit.com. Again, thanks for listening and see you next week.